This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here is Professor Mike Yuseem, Jeffrey Klein, and Anne Greenhall. Welcome to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Anne Greenhall, Deputy Director of the Anne and John McNulty Leadership Program, and tonight I am flying solo. My dear colleagues and co-hosts, Mike Yuseem and Jeff Klein, are off for the evening. And I have to smile to myself because Jeff Klein, listeners who are familiar with the show, Jeff Klein's pet name for me is Slacker. (laughs) And it makes me smile just to think I'm here and he's not. So, But tonight we've got a wonderful show and I'm glad you're here and that you are listening because we have the opportunity to speak with an author about her book. And the book is called The Sponsor Effect, How to Be a Better Leader by Investing in Others. And the author is none other than Sylvia Ann Hewlett. And Sylvia Ann Hewlett is CEO of Hewlett Consulting Partners. She is also the founder and chair emeritus of the Center for Talent Innovation. So it's really a pleasure to have Sylvia on our show tonight. Welcome. Uh, and it's very good to be with you. Well, thank you so much. And let me just make sure I'm absolutely right here. Is it right to call you Sylvia, or do you prefer Sylvia and together? Hi, uh, Sylvia is great. Okay, Sylvia. Well, thank you so much for joining me. And I've had an opportunity to uh, read through your book, and I enjoyed it very much. It's a very important topic sponsorship, sponsorship of others at work. And I thought, since this is a topic that is a familiar one to Mike and Jeff and me on the show, I thought I might start with a few definitions. We talk on the show about advisors, mentors, coaches, executive coaches, sponsors. So If you would, could you take us through those terms a little bit and help us appreciate the nuances and the differences among them? Absolutely. Perhaps I'll focus on the difference between a sponsor and a mentor. Great. (laughs) Because I I do feel that those two um, relationships are sometimes confused or uh, seem rather less distinct from one another than they should. So, you know, obviously, mentorship's been with us for decades, and uh, particularly women have uh, lots of great memories and current experiences with mentors. And a mentor is someone who is oftentimes uh, a little bit more senior to you in the workplace and really gives you the gift of guidance, advice, uh, Sometimes a shoulder to lean on if you're going through hard times, but really uh, very much um, not exactly unconditional love, but a lot of support and building of confidence. Mm-hmm. And I've certainly benefited from you know that kind of relationship throughout my life. Sponsorship is different. Sponsorship is a very deliberate investment. It's not a gift. Uh, an established leader or someone who is ambitious and on the fast track identifies and then invests in 
an outstanding, high-performing junior talent, um, develops that person's career, and as a result, he or her uh, themselves, you know, um, uh, reap significant rewards. Mm -hmm. In other words, it's very reciprocal, and it's both uh, persons, you know, in that relationship contributing a great deal of value. Uh, which enhances uh, their progression. Hmm. And what I show in this book, as you know, Anne, is that not only the more junior person benefits because right. um, a young person who earns sponsorship actually has a 20% greater chance of rising up to the next level in an organization, but the senior person benefits enormously too because uh, by having you know a young person who is uh, delivering like crazy for you. Uh, it really enhances your own scope and span and makes it much more possible for you to um, have, you know, a more success in the world. So it, it's kind of this reciprocal, you know, much more transactional relationship. Yeah, that yeah, that's very. I really appreciate that distinction, and I have to admit that I hadn't thought about mentorship as a kind of gift. Um, and the transaction that you talk about in sponsorship is clear to me from reading the book. Do you also see it in some way transformational, not only for the person who is sponsored, but for the one who is doing the sponsoring? Exactly. I mean, I'll give you two kind of crazy examples. LeBron James, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, an incredibly famous athlete. He hung out with buddies from his teenage years. Uh, but instead of just, you know, shooting the breeze and, you know, going to games together, he actually invested in the careers of two of them, mm -hmm. uh, Rich Paul and Maverick Johnson. He sent them to school. <laughs> So that they could earn degrees in management and in production. And, uh, you know, a little down the road, they uh, were able to contribute enormously uh, to his uh, business acumen. Because, you know, those were not areas in which he saw himself as having a whole lot of, you know, knowledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was through these protégés uh, that he got his $1 billion deal from Nike. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, obviously, he um, was very uh, committed to these people, but he saw them as enormously valuable. He deliberately invested. Uh, they benefited, obviously, in, in terrific ways, but he got a lot out of it, too. Those, Another example yeah. from a very different world, you know, uh, back in, you know, the very early 20th century, Gertrude Stein in Paris, mm. <laughs> uh, tripped over Pablo Picasso. <laughs> That's great. She was trying to make a name for herself as someone who could create a salon yeah. in Paris, which was enormously influential throughout Europe. She spotted this talent. She gave this young artist an incredible platform. He said, you know, throughout his life that he owed an an enormous amount to her. But you see, it benefited both of them because not only did it give him this kind of magic in Paris as in, mm -hmm. you know, someone from Spain who was really not in the right circles, it gave her 
the uh, commanding presence of someone who could uh, find and promote and uh, you know discover <laughs> a genius. Mm-hmm. So I, I think this you know kind of sponsor protege thing happens in many worlds, not just the corporate world. Mm, very good, Sylvia. At the very beginning, you said that you yourself have benefited from mentorship. Have you benefited from sponsorship? Well, you know, I must say I I share the um, conundrum of many women of my generation in that when I was at the beginning of my career, I was very focused on finding mentors. I did not understand uh, the importance of finding a sponsor. I'll give you an example. Uh, my first job after my PhD was um, as an assistant professor of economics at uh, Barnard College, Columbia University. Uh, it was a fabulous job. I, I felt I kind of won the lottery, you know, yeah. to be in that place, in that job. And I really went for broke. I, I really tried to succeed. You know, I published, I won the teaching prize, I sat on a lot of committees, and I found myself this wonderful mentor an older woman on the faculty at Barnard who was so full of guidance and advice. Uh, She had the office next door to me, and she took an incredible, almost maternal interest in me. Mm. And I remember so clearly that when I had my first baby, who was uh, absolutely very premature, she was transformational because she really supported me as I, you know, struggled with a two-hour feeding schedule six weeks after the child was born because, you know, there was no decent leave of any kind in those days. The problem was when the tenure decision loomed, you know, five years down the road, Annette Baxter, despite her very well-intentioned mentoring, was useless. Mm. It's not that she didn't try. She wrote me an amazing letter, right? But, you know, think about it. Annette was a medieval historian. I was an economist. Okay. She actually was not on any of the committees that was uh, that were, you know, trying to kind of figure out whether I should get right. tenure or not. Mm-hmm. And what I realized is how... Um, kind of unstrategic I had been because what I should have been doing in those years, uh, in addition to, you know, benefiting from Annette's um, nurturing because she was very good on that front and mentors often are, was actually finding influential economists who, you know, sat in a spot which allowed them <laughs> right. to open doors to me. Because, you know, I was quite capable probably of, you know, impressing the heck out of them too. But I had not thought to figure out how to develop a sponsor. Mm. And so when the big decision arrived, because in the end I was, you know, recommended by the department and all that that kind of thing because I had checked all the boxes. But on the last committee, the, you know, the Appointments and Tenure Committee of Columbia University, there were five guys. All of them, you know, in my field, none of them knew who the heck I was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, I think I learned a lot from that lesson because rising up the ladder, as you know, Anne, mm-hmm. is 
always tremendously competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there were four people up for tenure that year. There was only one slot. And I think I, I was as well qualified as the others, perhaps not any more so. Right, right. But they but... had sponsors on the committee. Mm-hmm. I did not. Uh, and it was, you know, a make-or-break moment because in academia, as is true in consulting, as in, is in, true in law firms, you know, uh, the partnership or tenure decision is, you know, you either got, get promoted or you get fired. Right, right. You're <laughs> in. Yeah. Yes. You know, so you're out in the cold. Mm-hmm. Um so um, I, I did understand at that juncture that you not just need mentors, you need sponsors, someone who understands your value, someone that you really have contributed to and is willing to go for back, you know, to bat for you in big time ways. Mm. Well, Sylvia, I so appreciate your telling, telling us that story. Uh, I'm wondering if you feel the main responsibility falls on the junior person's shoulders, or do you see it as a mutual responsibility? It's mutual. Mm -hmm. But both individuals have skin in the game. In other words, you know, a young, ambitious person, particularly if you're a woman or a person of color, because I think then it's, you know, even harder to kind of win these relationships, if you like, uh, needs to understand that you need to be quite proactive in lifting up your value. Uh, You know, you can't exactly, uh, (laughs) you know, rub your resume in people's faces, but uh, to be ready to seize opportunities to, um, Mm -hmm. you know, showcase, uh, your performance, your commitment, uh, your value add. And obviously in my work, I, I create all kinds of examples and tactics that allow that to happen. But, you know, this book is, I think, quite special because what I show is not only is it in a sponsor's interest to deliberately cultivate protégés, but it's incredibly important for the portfolio of talent that you're developing to be diverse. Mm, right. I like that point. <laughs> In fact, because, Sylvia, let me... Know, let... Left to itself, it's very tempting for a powerful person to uh, pick, <laughs> tap on the shoulder, <laughs> to use the lingo of the mm-hmm. old boys club, uh, a mini-me. Right. You know, someone you feel super comfortable with because you happen to play golf with them or, you know, you live in the same suburb or coach the same soccer team or whatever. But actually, for your own progression and the um, growth prospects of your firm or your team, <laughs> it makes a hell of a lot of sense these days to quite deliberately have a, a balanced portfolio. I mean, what I show is that uh, in my data, uh, the perfect uh, scenario for a rising leader is to very proactively uh, be investing in three <laughs> a very high-performing, you know, impressive young talents, and two of them should not look like you. 
All right. Now, Sylvia, I'm going to jump in there because we do want to jump into the playbook. But before we do, let me remind everyone that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I have the real pleasure of speaking with Sylvia Ann Hewlett about her book for No, her newest book, The Sponsor Effect, How to Be a Better Leader by Investing in Others. She's written other books as well, Forget a Mentor, Find a Sponsor, Off-Ramps and On-Ramps, and Executive Presence. But tonight we're talking about The Sponsor Effect. How about we dive into that playbook a little bit, uh, Sylvia? And it has a mnemonic to it. All of the all of the points begin with I. So why don't we begin with the first one, and that is to identify a potential protege. Tell us a little bit about how we do that. Uh, absolutely. Um, so what the data says, <laughs> if you want to uh, maximize, you know, the payoff to your investment, is that you should probably identify three. Uh, more junior talent uh, talents, and as I uh, said a little earlier, you know, two of them should not not look like you. Uh, for instance, um, if you look at who people sponsor across the American economy right now, uh, about three quarters of um, senior leaders uh, absolutely do tap people on the shoulder. You know, they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, identify uh, folks who they are really supporting to um, have key roles on their teams and maybe even take over for themselves, you know, down the road. But three quarters of them stick to the whole uh, comfort uh, zone of the mini-me. You know, someone who um, you have social connections with, someone who reminds you of yourself when you were younger, and it's not just, you know, white guys who tend to do this, right. but uh, if you take an Asian woman, you know, she clearly is more comfortable with another Asian woman. And what I show is that the protege who yields, you know, the most value for the team, for the company, and for yourself is someone that not only, you know, works extraordinarily hard and executes, you know, your uh, projects, and is committed and loyal, because that is very important. But it's also someone who brings a value add. Because, you know, marketplaces these days are very diverse. And, you know, one um, example I give is the world of um, investors, the wealth management business. Well, it turns out these days that over 50% of high net worth people are female. (laughs) Uh, And that's true, you know, in China and India as well as in the U.S. And female investors want to have a wealth management team that has gender smarts in the mix. Because, you know, they want performance and they, uh, you know, want... um, Efficiency as badly as men, but they also uh, want, uh, you know, a bigger basket of goods. They want to align their portfolio with why they're on the planet. They want to have a conversation (laughs) about meaning and purpose. They want to talk about three generations. Uh, I mean, I've looked at this in in seven different uh, marketplaces. 
And when there is a woman, uh, you know, on the uh, team who really understands viscerally <laughs> uh, this bigger value proposition, this female investor is much more likely to put their business there. Mm. Uh, so, you know, whether you're talking wealth management or life sciences or, you know, the retail business, uh, you know, the biggest emerging market in the world these days is not China. It's women. You know, this <laughs> is the fastest growing um, consumer segment. Um, and so you're handicapped <laughs> unless you have women around the table in key decision-making roles. Mm. And so what I outline in, you know, this book is, A, why the heck you should have a diverse portfolio of protégés, you know, people, high-performing people that you're really supporting and endorsing, but the payoff, you know, for the company and for yourself in the marketplace. And, you know, I, I just gave the example of women, but clearly yeah. the LGBT marketplace, for instance, is very rich these days. Uh, because, again, what I show is that the brand loyalty of LGBT individuals and their allies is huge. And having someone who is actually identified, you know, very explicitly as an LGBT leader on your team enormously increases the likelihood that you could hit this marketplace in the right spot. Um, and I've looked at this in India as well as, you know, in the U.S. So um, the reality of today is that homogeneous um, leadership teams uh, are inadequate. Yeah. That's I really appreciate it. and you have already just checked off two of the two of the steps in the playbook and that is first to identify potential proteges and we know three is a good number and two out of three should not look like you and second yeah. to be sure to include diverse right. perspectives and you gave the example of women and then secondly of uh, LGBT. Who, who, as you say, are particularly uh, fierce when it comes to brand loyalty. Exactly. How about your step three, inspiring for performance and loyalty? What do you mean by that, Sylvia? Well, you know, this is uh, quite magical uh, for particularly, uh, I think, uh, millennials. Whether you're Cisco or Eli Lilly or a matter of... American Express, creating connection with a very high-performing young person where you align vision and mission and meaning and purpose with what everyone does every day on the job is amazing. Because what this creates is really off-the-charts engagement as well as collaboration. Uh, because when a, you know, very high-performing 33-year-old feels that they found a cellmate in a leader who inspires them uh, with what the team can do together in promoting 
um, you know, the next phase in an exciting journey of um, mission and purpose, you know, it is extraordinary. Uh, and it allows, you know, the not just the tolerance of the 50-hour work week, but the excitement that, you know, allows uh, uh, the younger talent uh, to actually contribute that 110% that you need uh, if you are going to be truly creative Can you give- uh, and successful as a team. Can you give a concrete example of that from your from your experience? Well, uh, one example which I think is very real. Uh, I did a lot of work with the biotech um, uh, sector, and there was uh, one company in particular called Genzyme, which uh, did a fabulous job in terms of zeroing in on rare genetic disorders amongst children. Uh, As a result of this, uh, they were very uh, sought after uh, by highly qualified um, pathologists, you know, uh, biomedic professionals who really have a lot of job options these days. But what often happened at this company was that, you know, one year into this exciting opportunity, they no longer felt uh, that they had a connection with the mission, that the um, reason why they joined this company was not apparent to them on a weekly, monthly basis. And what happened uh, to solve for this, you know, disaffection and attrition, which started happening amongst, you know, these very um, (laughs) high-end, you know, hard-to-recoup people, was that there was a big push to use sponsorship as a way of reigniting connection Mm. to mission. And at that particular company, uh, you know, the senior team, you know, chose certain particularly precious talent and started taking them to conferences, to hospitals, and (laughs) made sure that they were reconnected with uh, the enormous impact this company was having, you know, uh, on the progression of medicine and on the lives of children. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it made a transformative difference. Hmm. Nice example, Sylvia. Listeners, you should feel free to call in. I'll make room for you, I promise. So call in one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. If you have a question about being a sponsor or a protege, please call in and join my conversation with Sylvia Ann Hewlett. We were walking through your steps in your playbook, and there are seven altogether. There's so much to say. We only got through three. Identify potential protege, include diverse perspectives, and be sure to inspire for performance and loyalty. The last four, just so our listeners know, and this is the teacher in me, by the way. I hope everyone will bear with me. (laughs) Number four, instruct to fill gaps. Number five, inspect your prospects. Six, instigate a deal, and seven, 
invest in three ways. So, Sylvia, author's choice, is there one in particular that you'd like to dive in and talk about in a little bit of depth? I absolutely will, Anne, but I do want to kind of uh, underscore the fact that these seven steps are, you know, very um, full of insight and tactics that create a result, which is that if a leader or a person who is, you know, um, on track to be a leader does this well, has a portfolio of three younger people that they're really sponsoring uh, in super effective ways, that person has a 53% better chance of getting to the next rung on the ladder. In other words, you know, there's an enormous payoff to getting this playbook right because uh, it's enormously valuable to anyone to have this kind of posse (laughs) of younger folks, diverse younger folks, um, who are delivering like crazy for you, have loyalty and commitment, and contributing a value add. So with that in mind, uh, I think it's also important to realize you don't have to get to the end of the seven steps before you realize any of this. Mm. Um, You know, each of these steps um, has immediate value because if you inspire someone so that they are um, hugely committed to the team and, you know, burnishing the brand and speaking enthusiastically uh, about the work being done, you know, there's such immediate benefit on all fronts. Hmm. Yeah, that's a very nice point. I appreciate that. Thank you. So let's pick this idea of instruction. And here is the great opportunity here. As a sponsor, you're lifting the game of the more junior talent. And it's incredibly important to get the ground rules straight. (laughs) You need to tell, you know, this younger person, look, it's a tribute uh, to my belief in your potential that I'm going to give you the unvarnished feedback as well as the supportive stuff. Because remember, you know, we have to, in a way, break the muscle memory of mentoring, which has always been about... um, building self-esteem, building confidence, etc. But, you know, Deborah Spar at the Harvard Business School said, you know, when she arrived at Harvard as a young faculty person, she went to her um, the tenured faculty person who was her sponsor and said, bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> I want the whole, you know, 360-degree stuff because I want to improve. Uh, and the only way that happens is that I've if I get the critical stuff as well as the, you know, uh, supportive stuff. All right. So now, Sylvia, I have to jump in here because you've touched on one of my favorite topics, and that is the giving and taking of feedback. Uh, And I totally appreciate uh, wanting the unvarnished, as you said, feedback. Can you model that conversation? How, How might what might that sound like? Well, I have some great examples. Uh, for instance, a, a very um, thoughtful, you know, young, uh, youngish African American woman, you know, enormously high performer, went to her boss and said, "Look, I'm presenting at a meeting next Thursday. We're both going to be there. I'm, you know, white hot. I think I've got it down. But there's this one area 
where I feel I could lift my game. Can you really kind of focus on that and give me some specific feedback afterwards? Because I know I can get to another level with this. Well, it was a total winner because, A, uh, it gave her boss, who was a white guy, a very specific task. Mm-hmm. He also felt great that he was being lent on in very practical, specific ways because he could respond to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, And they then got into a totally different kind of relationship around feedback because she helped him Mm -hmm. uh, get granular in ways that were truly useful to her. And he gave her all kinds of points for being so open. That's great. That's that's a really good example. So just being specific, for one, in the feedback is extremely helpful. You know, because, again, I think... Particularly with a diverse, uh, uh, you know, highly capable younger talent, one can be hesitant about that. You know, you might feel, well, you know, maybe it'll be taken wrongly. So to be given a green light by the younger person is kind of magical. Oh, that's great. The other example I I use is of a uh, very senior litigator at a Washington-based law firm who did these kind of whiteboarding sessions with the very high-performing, you know, um, senior associates. And he said, Look, what I learned to do was not walk into these kind of coaching sessions with a fixed idea as to what they were really good at. I allowed hmm. them to tell me, <laughs> you know, what their great strengths were, and we put it on, all on the, you know, uh, you know, on the whiteboard. And he said he was trying to avoid, um, you know, the kind of uh, uh, unintentional arrogance of a rather patrician, you know, 50-year-old, you know, white guy um, making a bunch of assumptions as to either (laughs) what the great strengths were of you know, either, you know, say a blue collar, you know, guy or a LGBT individual or uh, someone who uh, is, uh, you know, say female and, you know, ethnically diverse because they are trying to, um, you know, enhance the chances of, of these folks sticking with the firm, particularly if they're very high performing. Um, and again, that was magical because it allowed the... Uh, younger talent to feel, um, I guess, the respect and the ability to drive the value. Mm, that's great. That he or she was bringing to the table. Mm. Uh, and again, you know, I I, I create almost the, the these word portraits of how you do that. Mm-hmm. Well, Sylvia, you've already started to do that, and what I appreciate is in you've given two examples, and in the first, the protege invites the uh, sponsor to give, you know, tough feedback that is highly specific, and she invites him in. In the second, the protege leads again, and this time leads with strengths. What am I good at? (laughs) Yes, and and what are my networks? Uh, because uh, here is one thing I do know, which is that, uh, and this is uh, an example from the same firm, 
a particular individual had actually got a White House Medal of Honor for enormously valuable work done in the state of New Jersey uh, when she was in law school. It was a well-kept secret. <laughs> you know, no one knew about this. But she had the most amazing connections uh, in the state legislature and, in fact, in many organizations across the state. But she'd never been invited to share some of her enormous, you know, social capital. Mm-hmm. The same can be true of veterans. Oftentimes, their leadership skills or their very specific um you know, networks and constituencies are not known about. Uh, and obviously, not only does the person at the center of this feel respected and honored and uh, amazingly uh, committed as a result of being listened to and acknowledged, but these are really valuable pieces of social capital. That's great. Well, Sylvia, those are wonderful examples and points really well taken with the added bonus of getting a little bit of feedback on how to give (laughs) feedback, which I really appreciate. So let me remind everyone that you are listening to Leadership in Action on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School, Channel 132. I'm Ann Greenhall, and I am here tonight speaking with Sylvia Ann Hewlett about her new book, The Sponsor Effect. So, Sylvia, I want to just... um, just take a little turn here and ask you, if you will, to talk about some of the potential pitfalls or challenges in the sponsor and protege relationship. And I will admit that I have a special interest in hearing you talk about potential challenges cross-gender, particularly if there's a male sponsor and a female protege. Right. Well, what I uh, persuaded several leaders to talk about is uh, relationships, sponsorship relationships that they needed to end. Hmm. Uh, Because, you know, uh, this is about driving value. Uh, And sometimes you will tap someone on the shoulder and they turn out not to be up to the tasks at hand. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that's always true. Uh, There is a failure rate. Uh, so how do you explore that? Uh, how do you actually deal with the breakup? <laughs> yeah. Um, so some of it is, you know, perhaps rather predictable. I, I talked to um, Michael Ross, who is uh, the CEO of IPG, about times he has uh, promoted seemingly fabulous talent uh, and moved them up the ladder and, in the end, they've not been able to hit the numbers or manage the bigger task at hand. Uh, and he was very clear about how one needs to take that on board and uh, either, you know, uh, sever the uh, uh, employment relationship or downgrade them to a mentee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and he has done that with both men and women. Mm, that's not easy. Uh, <laughs> it is not easy. No. Uh, well, you know, one of the more interesting interviews I did was with a very senior woman who was uh, sponsoring um, a very um, exciting talent, a, a man who was um, 
a gay individual, a very out gay individual, and she um, had great uh, belief in this talent. But what happened is that he got into trouble, and he didn't tell her. Oh, okay. <laughs> Trust. And eight months later, you know, she had not heard from him, and she picked up on the grapevine that he had messed up some very important assignments. And she was very disturbed because she said, look, one of the ground rules of sponsorship is that it's on the head of the sponsee, the protege, to ensure frequent contact with you because, you know, that's part of the game that they're in charge of because, you know, they're driving this as well as you are. And, you know, they got a little more time than you have. <laughs> um so she had a very serious meeting with him and said, look, I want to be able to troubleshoot. Uh, I need to be able to troubleshoot if you run into trouble because you're walking around with my brand on your forehead. Mm-hmm. And if you mess up, there's egg on both of our faces, which is the truth right. about sponsorship. So he promised that he'd never commit that mistake again. Uh, And they had some very successful months, and he did amazing stuff. And then the same thing happened. Uh Uh-oh. He made a major mistake with a stakeholder, an external stakeholder, and he did not tell her. Mm. And this time, it was a different conversation. She she called him in and said, look, it's over. Um, I can't, you know, I'm not, I cannot sponsor you anymore. Uh, You're on your own. Um, you know, I'm not firing you. She actually was not his, uh, in his chain of command. Uh, but, you know, you, you can't do this twice. Mm. Uh, and she wasn't so much <laughs> saying that you're not allowed to fail. But you're not allowed to fail in secret. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, and that was a wonderful lesson, I think. Right. Uh, for these relationships because you have to maintain transparency and trust. Right. Because this is a risky relationship. You're taking, you're using a political capital, right, on each other's behalf. Right, right. So Sylvia's... Mentoring is always very safe because it's actually a gift. It's pretty casual sometimes. It's light-fingered. You know, this is not... Uh, deeply uh, expending mm-hmm. right. <laughs> uh, your capital. Right. So, Sylvia, talk a little bit about how implicit or explicit the uh, relationship can be. That's a great question, Anne. It could be either. All right. In, in some cultures, uh, American Express, Intel, you know, there are many companies where you can be as noisy as you like about this relationship because uh, it's ingrained in the culture now. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it's good to be noisy because uh, at American Express, you know, there's actually certain uh, restaurants, you know, right near the tower, <laughs> downtown Man- Manhattan, where uh, sponsors and their protégés get together all the time. And the more out in the open it is, the better, particularly in this, you know, era of Me Too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sponsors talk a lot about the enormous, you know, qualifications and, you know, contributions of their protégés, and that's great. But obviously in a more muted or perhaps old-school environments, 
uh, it's much more subtle. Uh, but what we know <laughs> is that sponsorship is always happening because it's the way in which power is transferred in organizations and it's been going on for centuries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> power is transferred. People retire, people die. They tap on the shoulder someone, mm-hmm. right? Right. And, you know, the reason I've done this work is to make this process more understandable, perhaps a little bit more transparent. Yeah. And perhaps more accessible by all top talent. Mm-hmm. Whether you went to the right schools or look the same as the leaders, it doesn't matter. Uh, it should be a meritocracy. Mm, that's great. Well, you anticipated one of my questions, which was, you know, you have so much expertise. This has been a topic that has been of interest to you for a long time. But what prompted you to write this book? You know, I grew up in the coal mining valleys of South Wales. I was one of six sisters in a family where my dad was out of work. And uh, this is not a sponsor-rich environment. And I do feel that, uh, you know, a lot of my life I've not known, you know, in my bones how to do this, but I have figured out that... (laughs) (laughs) Eventually, I figured out that relationship capital is incredibly important in how you get from the middle to the top in this society. And, you know, all of the new kids on the block, whether you're, you know, a Mm. woman from the coal mining Mm. areas or, you know, a new immigrant from a country that is brown or black. Um, But talent is all over the place. I mean... Right. (laughs) That's right. um, So I think that figuring out how to make this be a a relationship that is winnable uh, by anyone who has the drive and the ability and the imagination to... That's great. ...excellence, right? Yeah. ...is where we should be getting to. Very good. So, Sylvia, in your career, uh, when you look back, can you say that you eventually did discover a sponsor, or did you get to the point in your career where you were um, as wise as you were, (laughs) that you realized that now you were more in the position of telling others how to do it, or perhaps sponsoring yourself? Well, I'll tell you a story from the recent past where I think I really used sponsorship and my new knowledge of it. Uh, About five years ago, uh, I realized that, you know, uh, unless you're 85 and totally checked out, you always need uh, new sponsors to open doors if you're going to continue to have agency in this world. And to, you know, um, fulfill uh, new dreams. So um, I set myself the task of figuring out what did I want to do next. Oh, great. (laughs) Uh, And um, I realized that having worked with the private sector for a long time, I'd like to have a little more influence in Washington. Mm. And I literally, you know, wheeled out my Rolodex and dusted it off and 
I figured out, well, who do I know? That's great. <laughs> who could help me do that? And I realized that Alan Kruger mm-hmm. was head of the Council of Economic Advisors. And he and I had taught together at Princeton, and I knew that he liked my work, and I was a great admirer of him. And so learning from the work I had been doing on sponsorship, I realized that you had to give before you could get. Right. So I did my homework, and I realized that Alan had all of these impossible briefs because he was very short on headcount, and in the second half of the Obama administration, he'd been tasked with looking at um, avenues out of poverty for women something I had done a lot of research on some years back. So I I gave it a lot of thought, and then I called Alan. He took my call. He did remember me. That's great. (laughs) And I said, Alan, um, can I help you? Uh, Can I actually do some work for you for free? You know, I'll come down and I'll put together some briefs and update this work and create some policy options. Well, he almost fell off his seat because <laughs> if you're, you know, a powerhouse in Washington and an old friend calls up, you suspect that they're going to ask for a favor, right? Right. <laughs> um, so I did that. And then he picked up the phone and made some phone calls. Lovely. <laughs> and opened some doors. Very nice. And I ended up on a committee that I really wanted to be on at the White House. Oh. Sylvia, that is a wonderful story. And now, last question, because we have just a minute left, I and I've saved this for last, but I was very touched by your dedication for your husband, Richard, who helped me heal in 2018 and yeah. make me strong again. So, yeah. last word. Well, you know, uh, I had a cancer crisis, and I'm well again. Um, and... I think living proof that if you're halfway lucky, our lives are long. And we want to, all of us, uh, continue to do good work and have agency. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And therefore, there's an evergreen um, quality to the winning of sponsorship and the giving of sponsorship. Mm. That's really beautiful, Sylvia. (laughs) I can't thank you enough for joining me tonight on the show. It really has been such a pleasure uh, speaking with you tonight. Thank you, Anne. All right. Very good. Well, listeners, you've had a chance to hear Sylvia Ann Hewlett talk about her book, The Sponsor Effect, How to Be a Better Leader by Investing in Others. You heard about her seven Steps all in eyes, identify potential protégés, include diverse perspectives, inspire for performance and loyalty, instruct to fill skill gaps, inspect your prospects, investigate a deal, and last, invest in three ways. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 